All right, as you know, we are in a season-long study of Jesus in the Old Testament, and we're going to continue to do that today. And this all begins by Jesus being on the road to Emmaus, uh, that famous story in Luke where right after uh, he's crucified uh, and he appears on the road to Emmaus uh, with two disciples who are desolate and downtrodden. They cannot believe that Jesus died. Every, all their hopes, you know, collapsed. And so Jesus does not reveal himself. He walks with them uh, this seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which I myself have done. Uh, and there's nothing there in Emmaus but some wreckage of a, of a church. Yeah, and it's amazing. Uh, but he, here he is. He walks along the road with them and, and basically revealing to them that the entire Old Testament was about him. About him. Now, he doesn't tell them who he is, but about him, that, that he had to suffer. And the Bible made it clear that he had to suffer, that that was the nature of the Christ. And he begins with Moses and the prophets, and he goes through all this. Uh, and so at the end, when they have dinner uh, and he breaks the bread, they realize who he is then, uh, and he disappears, and they run back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples that they saw their Savior. Well, that's what this is about. Uh, and so, really, uh, when you see Jesus verify the Old Testament about him, how, how important is it for us to go back and see that? I think it's a key issue. I think we need to study this. Uh, you don't hear it preached in church too often because it takes some time to develop it. But we're going to do that over this season. Uh, and I hope you're going to be able to bring other people to that same understanding. Uh, we want to be better equipped to face this world. And the only way you can do that is with a deep and fundamental understanding of who Jesus is uh, and how from the beginning of time God really prepared him for that assignment. Uh, and so as you study the scripture, as we're doing, really almost every page of the Old Testament in scripture is about him. It's about him. Whether it's a Christophany or a typology uh, or, or a metaphorical reference, whatever it is, it points to Jesus Christ, uh, and we need to, to know that. You know, the, the last book of the Bible opens up with the words, quote, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, I will submit to you that every book in the Bible could have that uh, name, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so one of the things that you recognize as we study Christ uh, in the New Testament, we note that he always affirmed the Old Testament. In every way, he affirmed it, of the infallibility of Scripture, uh, the historicity of Scripture, uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. He always did that. Uh, and so when you have people that tell you, well, I think the Old Testament is, you know, some fables and some stories, well, Jesus didn't think that. Uh, and I would say, who would know better than Jesus who was involved in writing it uh, and picking the men that actually wrote it. Uh, look at John 10, 35. John 10, 35, Jesus speaks on this very issue. The scripture cannot be broken. How about that? The scripture cannot be broken. If it's in the scripture, you can take it to the bank. It cannot be broken. Then look also at Matthew 5, 18. Uh, again, Jesus speaking on the scripture. He says, truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, 
not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It will all be accomplished. If it's in the scriptures, Jesus said, it will all be accomplished. What an amazing statement, uh, verifying again the accuracy of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture. Now, Jesus also, you see, also uh, talks about uh, specific events in scripture. Uh, for example, he talked about divorce. Take a look at Genesis chapter 2, all right? Take a look at that, Genesis chapter 2, uh, and uh, looking at verse uh, 23. Uh, and, he, and he's citing Adam and Eve here and the creation of woman. And he says there, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Verse 24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. They will become one flesh. Well, Jesus cited this uh, as the question became uh, about divorce. It's one flesh. Uh, and so he referred to that. Uh, and so he also confirmed as historical and not allegorical uh, the story of the creation of Adam and Eve. Jesus talked about that. Jesus talked about Jonah and the great fish uh, as a real live event. He talked about the flood. He talked about the slaying of Abel. He talked about the miracles of Elijah uh, and many more things. And in every case, Jesus verified, verified the accuracy of the Old Testament. Now, numerous liberal critics today discount uh, the scripture, the Old Testament, uh, as the actual word of God and simply read out of the text whatever they disagree with. Well, yeah, good. That's your Bible, okay? How's it working out for you, your Bible, all right? Uh, Jesus indicated that the scriptures were what God wrote them to be. Uh, the account in Genesis of man's fall uh, is clearly poignant and is a stern warning to us today about disrespecting the word of God. And so that's important to understand this in every way. Now, few lessons from Genesis are more important than to take the word of God seriously. Uh, and here, as we've studied it, the word of God centers on Jesus Christ. Now, Satan's plan at the Garden of Eden was to cast doubt about the plain, literal meaning of God's word. Did God really tell you? Did he really say that about the tree? Uh, and that's Satan's, that's Satan's motive. That's what he does. He wants you to discount and not believe. Uh, and so uh, his plan is to get you to sin by believing it's not a sin, by getting you to believe that's not what God said. Uh, and his, uh, the ultimate message of the Bible is not despair. The ultimate message of the Bible is hope. Hope in every way. Hope to know that this is the roadmap that will take you to heaven. Uh, and so here's the bottom line that you read and understand and Jesus told you. That is that God created man knowing he would sin. God created man knowing he would sin. Uh, and, and how do I know that? Well, I know that because the Bible tells us 
that from before time was created, Jesus was, was going to be our Savior. Well, why would you need a Savior if you weren't going to sin? Why would God himself have to come uh, and be put on a cross as that perfect sacrifice uh, if, if we weren't going to sin? So God knew we were going to sin. But you see, it's so beautiful in the way God created you. He gave you free choice. He gave you the very ability to shake your fist at him, to repudiate him and not love him. But at the same time, he gave you a savior and the grace to have that savior. And every word of the Bible speaks about that issue. Uh, and so regardless of the fact that some people say the Old Testament uh, may make God seem harsh or forbidding, well, all I can tell you is how harsh and forbidding can God be when he sent his own son to die for you? How harsh and forbidding. And that's something we must remember. Uh, we were created to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. Uh, and so uh, this is how God demonstrated his unbounded love for you that he gave you, his own son, the Savior, to die for you. Now, a sin separates us, separates us uh, from God. Uh, making provision for our sin is a necessary prerequisite to reunite us with God. Let's understand something. God cannot abide sin. Now, we talked about that last week uh, when, when the two angels and Jesus himself uh, met Abraham uh, as they decided whether Sodom and Gomorrah would be destroyed. And the two angels proceeded on from meeting Abraham, but God, Jesus, did not go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because Christ cannot abide sin. God cannot abide sin. Uh, and so even as the judgment was, was put down on Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus would not walk into that sin-filled place. And so the Christian church must, must focus on this. Uh, and it cannot drop its constant focus on man's sin lest we really lose sight of our helplessness. This becomes an important thing to understand about our faith. Your faith is predicated on the fact that you're fallen, that you cannot serve God in the state that you're in, that you are uh, really laid down with sin. And only by the grace of God, who actually gave you your faith, he gave you the faith for you to reach up and say, Lord, I need a savior, that that very act then saves you forever as you accept Christ. Uh, and so we can never lose sight of our helplessness, ever. Uh, and so many churches fail to, to preach that. You know, uh, the, it's so easy uh, to see churches preach kumbaya. Am I right? Let's get the marshmallows out. Let's bring a couple of guitars. You know, God, oh, Jesus loves you. Yeah, he does love you, but he repudiates your sin. No, we don't talk about that. We don't like to talk about that, you know. But here's the bottom line. You have to talk about it. You understand? How did he, he went to the cross because of your sin, not because you were lovable, all right? He didn't go because he, you were lovable. He went because you were a sinner, and the only way you could come into the presence of God was that you needed a Savior. There had to be a blood sacrifice. Uh, and so it's important. Uh, and so one of the things that, that uh, causes us to have reflection here is Israel. Israel. And I know some of you have talked about this. But we must ask the question, why does God take sovereignty and control over a tiny nation 
in the middle of nowhere, why does God do that? What's God's mindset on that? Uh, and I believe it's his mindset was that Israel was supposed to be a critical part of redemption history. You understand this. God wanted Israel to be the platform by which Jesus would come in, he would be lifted up and affirmed as their savior, and that they would then be effectively a a nation of evangelists. Well, that didn't work out. Uh, But God has a filial filial relationship uh, with Israel, and that's an astonishing concept. I want you to think about all that God gave Israel. Look at what he has given them. Uh, Just a few things. The covenants. He gave Israel the covenants, the promises, the giving of the law to Israel, the worship of God himself and how worship should take place, all of the attendant promises in Scripture, the fact that he took them out of custody of Pharaoh and walked with them for 40 years, all right, led by a pillar of light and fire and a cloud leading them in every way and protecting them. And we've talked about that in every way as they walked and traversed through a desert and gave them food every day. What other nation have you ever heard of something like this? Uh, And to them belong the patriarchs. And from the patriarchs come Jesus Christ, who is God over all. And so we learn much about the maturation, spiritual maturation process through Israel's experiences. We do. Uh, And God wants us to understand that. Uh, And so we see this. We see what happens when you live in disobedience, when you disobey God. uh, And you see the difference between submission and disobedience. That's a lesson for us as we come to terms with that. And so God demonstrates through Scripture the indispensability uh, of drawing closer to him in every way, closer to him. And that's what you need to have if you want to have fulfillment in your lives. Fellas, all I can say to you is if you want to have a rich and meaningful life, you have to get as close as possible to Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, this is a key thing. As close as you can to Jesus Christ. Every day of your life, uh, make that the single most important thing, to get closer to Christ in every way. It will give you meaning and fulfillment in a way that you've never seen it before. And, And so, God recognized that we as sinners needed a mediator uh, in order to address our needs. Now, sometimes God punishes the Israelites for their flaws and their disobedience, but he never abandons them. He never abandons them. Yes, they failed to submit to him, and so God let them wander for 40 years in the desert, but he didn't abandon them there. He still protected them. And that's an important lesson for you. God pours out his grace on Israel even as they disobey. That's our God. And he does that for you as well. And so you see God's grace as it marches history to its conclusion. And the conclusion will be that when Jesus comes back, there will be a number of Jews who will step up and be evangelists for Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us, and I believe it. Now, Getting back to Genesis, the third verse of Genesis reads, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Uh, Now, this is historically true, but it can also be tied uh, to the New Testament truth. 
and, and uh, that's fundamental. But the reason I say that is that Jesus is the light of men. That's found in John chapter 1, verse 4. He is the light of man. The Bible also tells us that he is the light that lighteth the heart of every man that cometh into the world. He is the light that lighteth the heart of every man that cometh into the world. What does that mean? It means no matter who you are or where you are, somehow God has put a spark, a radio receptor in your heart that leads you to Jesus. Leads you to Jesus. And we see this when we study some of the missionaries that have gone into Africa. And they've talked about the fact that many of these tribes, uh, without knowing who Jesus was, were praying we're praying that, that someone would come who would be God himself. They understood it. And so he is that light. Uh, also in John 8, verse 12, Jesus there is called the light of the world. The light of the world. Uh, the Old Testament repute, repeatedly reiterates this theme. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. There it is. Okay? You want a recitation of Jesus in the Old Testament? There it is. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Your very salvation mentioned there in Psalms. That's a thousand years before Jesus would be born. Look also at Psalm 36, verse 9. Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see the light. In your light, we see the light. It's eternal light. That's who Jesus is. And so here we are in a sea of darkness, in a world filled with darkness, uh, and yet Christ is the light. This is the message that you have to give to a lost world. When you leave here, my, my hope for you, my hope for you, uh, is, is that these lessons will resonate not just with you, but with your family, with your friends, with the world. You know, uh, this weekend, I got two emails from people I never met before, one from the state of Washington, one from California, who listened to me on the radio and told me how much uh, my messages have lifted their life. Now, all I can tell you is that's the Holy Spirit. You understand? People that I've never met, but all they hear is me reciting the word of God. Well, you can do that. God is calling you to do that. You have no idea the impact uh, of that. Uh, and so we ask God to give you the strength and ability to do this. Now, Genesis, Genesis is rich with the types of Christ, typology of Christ, just as the New Testament confirmed. Uh, the first type, of course, uh, is Adam, who's Satan, uh, tempted, just as he tempted Jesus. Uh, so there you see the first, the first man, Adam, who was created to be perfect. But he disobeyed God and fell from grace uh, and as, as a result was pushed out of the Garden of Eden. But uh, Jesus is called the second Adam in the Bible. The second Adam. Why? Because Jesus was perfect again, the perfect man, God in every way. But Jesus did not sin. He did not sin. He did not fall. And so you see how God uses uh, Jesus uh, to perfect man himself. Adam represents the sinner and Christ, the conqueror of sin. Now, Paul, 
uh, in his letter to the Romans, expands on this relationship of Jesus uh, and showing how his death uh, ushered in, really, uh, through Adam's sin, a life uh, that would defeat death and would be lifted up by the resurrection. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sins, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Look, the point there is that sin is in the DNA of humanity. All right? Uh, it's there. From the moment you're born, you're burdened with the sin pattern. That's what it's about, recognizing the helplessness uh, of, of humanity. And that only through the intervention of God and Jesus Christ can you be saved. There, there's no other way around it. Uh, and so Adam brought sin into this world as he fell, and then it became part of the human DNA. But you know, if you just take two babies, take this test. Take two babies, put them in a crib, put one toy in there. I submit to you that within probably 10 minutes, one kid will be hitting the other kid in the head over the toy. That's who we are. You understand? That's the beauty of you. You understand? That's who we are. Uh, and God sees it and God knows it. And so he gave the antidote. He gave the prescription. It's Jesus Christ. Now, as we also drill down on Genesis, there's another verse which I think really is poignant as well, found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, where Adam sins, and now God walks back into the garden, and imagine that, God walking with men. Uh, and so Adam and Eve are hiding. They're hiding. They don't want God to see them. So guess what? We can hide from God. Really? Really? How's that working out for you? You can hide from God? Well, look at Genesis 3, verse 9, where God asks Adam, where are you? Where are you? Well, let me ask you a question. Seriously. Do you think God had to ask him, where are you? All right, the creator of the universe, where are you? He knew where he was, but the question begged to be answered by Adam. Where are you, Adam, spiritually? Have you walked away from me? Have you left me? And that's a question that God's asking us. Where are you? Where are you, John? Where's your heart? Are you with me? Uh, and, and, he, and effectively what he's doing is he's declaring, where are you in your relationship with me? That's God asking that question across time for us. Where are you? Don't hide from me. Or you will defeat the very purpose for which you were created. You were created to have an ongoing relationship with me. Don't ever forget it. Uh, and so look, we have all walked away from God at times in our lives. I know I did as well. I didn't say I walked away, but you know in your heart uh, you walk away. You don't have the same fervency or the same love. Uh, and, and, and you pray that God forgives you for that, and he does. 
when you come to terms. Look, I told you that until I reached about the age of 50, uh, I never wanted to be in a frontline position in church. I didn't want to be the preacher. I didn't want to be the Bible teacher. I didn't want that. I repudiated that. Look, I was raised in a poor house. I slept in a kitchen until I was 18. I saw what my father did in order to be the pastor of a small church. I repudiated that. I didn't want that for me. I had one thing in mind, get out of this poverty, okay? Uh, and that's why I, God gave me the ability to practice law, and he poured so many blessings out of my, on my life. But it wasn't until I was 50 years old that the call came in my life that I realized I was called for another purpose, that he called me to speak about him publicly, to be a teacher and a pastor. Uh, and that was a lesson that took me a lifetime to learn. And I would suggest that you also are on a similar path. It may not be to be a pastor or a Bible teacher, but in some ways, God constrains us as he leads us in his will. And I understood it. And I told you that for me, the big stumbling block was that I was not holy enough. I looked at my father, a pastor his whole life. I looked at my grandfather, a missionary and pastor and church founder. Uh, and I saw men who were truly holy, and I was not holy. I didn't need God to tell me that. I knew I was not holy. But I felt that I would serve God in what I call the secondary capacity. I'd be the church organist. I would support the ministries financially. I would do all these things. But I would do it from the second pew. You understand? I didn't want to be in the front pew. I'd rather be in the second pew until he grabbed me, you see. He grabbed me and said, no, brother. No, that's not the call on your life. Whether you recognize it or not, you're called to do something else. Uh, and so that's how God deals with us in his grace and his love. Uh, and fundamentally, I had to understand that nobody's holy. You understand? My father, as much as I respected him, is not truly holy in the sight of God. He's holy because he accepted Jesus Christ. And when you accept Jesus Christ, you effectively are put on the body of Christ. You're attached to the body of Christ. And so God now sees you through the filtering lens of Jesus Christ. You're not holy, but because you're attached to Jesus, God sees you as holy. And when I finally came to recognize that, uh, it, it allowed me really to step up and serve him in a power and really in, in the way that he wanted me to serve him. I want you to turn to the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 1 to 16. Uh, and, and I'm going to give you this story, and we're going to talk about this today, because the story of Cain and Abel is a story that really elevates on a number of levels. First of all, it's a metaphorical story about Jesus, it's a medical, metaphorical story about redemption. Uh, it's, a, it's a story about the basic nature of humanity and sin and evil. Uh, and it paints the prospect of why Christ is coming to this world. Uh, and it's important to see this. Uh, and so we want to do this. So this is now found in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering 
fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So let's understand what's going here. Uh, effectively, Cain brings some vegetables, uh, and uh, Abel brings uh, uh, a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. <clears throat> the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Now, let's talk about that, okay? Let's talk about this. This is early, early on in the history of the Bible, all right? Uh, and so what you see here really is the first mention of the fact of sacrifice, sacrifice to God. Uh, the law has not been written yet, okay? There's no Leviticus. This is still you know, several thousand years before that will come about. What you see here is that God is indicating what he looks at for proper worship, and that is sacrifice, blood. Blood becomes key. Uh, and so he rejects Cain uh, because Cain did not bring that sacrifice. Abel did. Uh, and we're going to talk about that some, some, uh, some more. Uh, and, and so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. He's angry. He's angry at God. You understand? He's angry at God. And one of the reasons why Cain will kill Abel is because Cain cannot kill God. He can't kill God, but I can kill my brother, all right, who God has favored. And you see how we are as, as human beings? How, how our anger really ultimately is God? That's what goes on as we sin. It's anger against God. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Well, of course he knew. He didn't need, you know, Cain to make a, an apology there. He understood. And then God says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do what is right. If you do what is right. Now, remember, the law hasn't been given yet. Uh, this is effectively the first children uh, created by uh, a husband and wife. Uh, but clearly, God has interposed an understanding of what the proper sacrifice is. If, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now you understand the nature of Christ. Sin is crouching at your door for all of us. We're just one small step away from sin. And God is revealing that to you. Your sin is crouching at your door. This is why you need Christ. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. As I said to you, he, he couldn't kill God, and so he killed his brother. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Again, did he need to ask him? He knew. I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Let's stop. The answer is yes. Yes. You are your brother's keeper. Yes. You know, we're, we're studying spiritual warfare in church, and one of the things that we recognized is warfare prayer, meaning what? You have a responsibility to pray for others, to lift up others, to affirm them in every way. God has called you to do that. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. The Lord said, uh, what have you done? Listen. Listen. Almost listen to your sin. 
I love this. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You can't hide your sin. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's uh, blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth, the curse of Cain. You will wander the earth. Uh, you will not be able to easily produce crops. Uh, and so you see it. This is what happens when you succumb to sin. This is why you need Jesus Christ. This is why you need a Savior. This story, again, is really a metaphorical story about Jesus. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Stop. What does that mean? It means that there would be people who would be on the earth who would kill Cain. Well, the question becomes, well, were there other people alive other than Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve? Were there? Well, we don't know. Uh, this story could have taken place generations later. They, Cain and Abel might have been much older. They might have had other brothers and sisters who were out there. But he clearly had this fear that he would be a marked man. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Again, you're seeing God now speak out in a powerful way about judgment. You understand? Judgment. We know we move from the Garden of Eden, where God basically took Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. But now we're looking at the judgment of sin, the actual perpetuation of sin from humanity uh, and, and vengeance. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. We don't know what that mark was, but whatever it was, it was easily uh, perceivable. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And you can see that there's a famous book, East of Eden. Uh, and you can see where it got that title, East of Eden. So this is a story, effectively, of rebellion, judgment, and grace. It is a capitulation, a recapitulation, of effectively the Garden of Eden, which was also a story of rebellion, judgment, and grace. Uh, and, and so you see this here. Uh, and the grace is that God did not kill Cain. He gave him the grace to continue to live, uh, and he said that he would protect him. That is the grace of God. Uh, and so the story really is a reflection of what Jesus will be uh, for us. Now, why is God disappointed with Cain's sacrifice? Because the sacrifice was not about blood. God demands a blood sacrifice uh, in order to come into the throne of worship. Uh, and, and not only was Cain's sacrifice improper, but his attitude was improper. All right? His attitude was improper. He's angry with God. He's angry with God. He's lifting himself up. It's about me, me, I, I. All right? And you see that with Cain as distinguished uh, from Abel. There's no humility there with Cain. Uh, and so Cain or offered the ordinary, the ordinary, and Abel offered the best. Uh, 
Uh, and so it's important as you see this here as to God demanding uh, perfection in the sacrifice. Uh, and so the scriptures speak about this as well. Um, the author of Hebrew contrasts the two sacrifices. Uh, and that's in Hebrews 11, verse 4. And there it says that by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of the offering. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Can you understand how God looks at how you sacrifice, how you come into worship, how you approach the throne of grace? Again, this is a metaphor about Christ. Christ needed to save humanity, all right? Because you see here sin coming right from the first two guys, the first two human beings born of a man and a woman, uh, and you recognize it. Uh, and so what you see here, this is also a condemnation of what I would call uh, the mere outward exercise of religion, right there. The condemnation of the mere outward exercise of religion. Why do I say that? Well, he made an offering. He made an offering. This is what he did. He brought it and he offered it, but God repudiated it. Why? Because God sees your heart. So merely having an outward manifestation of religion is irrelevant. All right? Just because you go to church on Sunday morning does not mean that your heart is right with God. All right, he's looking to see your heart. Where's your heart? Uh, God wants true, authentic worship. You know, Jesus spoke about that with the Pharisees, uh, and he said there that, that if you have something against your brother and you bring a gift to the temple, what did Jesus say? Leave the gift down. Go out and make it right with your brother, then come back. Don't think your gifts are going to sacrifice, uh, going to touch the heart of God. If your heart is not right, uh, if you have not submitted yourself to God, uh, God sees your heart, uh, and so he looks for real worship. And uh, So the, the heart behind all our worship becomes key in every possible way. Worship must be sincere, poignant, and thorough. Uh, and, and so it's amazing when you see how Cain responds. He's angry. He's angry with God. He's displeased. Uh, rather than wanting to do the right thing, he had every point there to say, forgive me, Father, forgive me. I know that I'm short, that I'm, doing, I'm not doing your will. Give me, give me a, a chance to make it right. Uh, and, and instead, God tells him, do what is right. Do what is right, which is to worship uh, with a heart that manifests the proper offering. But he also warns Cain. He also warns him, what will happen if he does not change? Sin will dominate him. Now, let me say this. Why I say this is a metaphor for Jesus, it's this. Because God knew you needed a Savior. If you don't accept Jesus Christ, if you don't change your ways, sin will dominate your life. It's as simple as that. You know, this isn't a fairy tale. Sin dominates your life. You can't live a life in accord with God unless you're with Jesus Christ. All right? You see it here from the very beginning of time. That here it is, the two brothers wind up one killing the other over sin in his heart. Uh, and so you recognize the fact that our very DNA is contaminated. Uh, and so get your heart right. Submit to the will of God, uh, and your sacrifice will be right as well. Uh, and God warned Cain of the danger of anger, 
uh, and con uh, continuing insincerity uh, in his heart. Sin is waiting to take control of your life. I would say that is a very important thing. If you don't address sin in your life, it will take control of your life, which is why you need Jesus. It is Jesus, you see, who takes sin out of your life. Jesus, uh, who gives you the way to the Father, because sin is crouching at the door. Look, this story tells us that Cain couldn't kill God. He despised God. He couldn't kill God, but he could kill his brother. He could kill that which God uh, loved. Uh, and so what you see here is unrighteous anger uh, results really from a hatred of God uh, and the things that God stands for. Uh, unrighteous anger uh, delivers us from a trusting God uh, who, who wants us to submit and comply to him in every way. And yet God still shows grace. I love this. Despite all of the evil there, God still dispensed grace. And that grace is through Jesus Christ. Uh, he promises severe retribution to anybody who will harm Cain. Uh, and so that becomes an important understanding of how God leads with us and how God uses uh, his will with us. And so this becomes important. Uh, Cain's sacrifice does not involve blood. It does not involve blood. Uh, and so God wants blood in the sacrifice. There can be no sacrifice without blood. And we understand this because several thousand years later, uh, at the Passover, you will see what God demands as a perfect uh, sacrifice. Abel's offering is a type of Christ. It's a type of Christ because it is innocent. It is a living creature. It is a lamb uh, without spot or blemish whose blood is spilled in sacrifice. It is the very typology of Jesus Christ. You see, Cain represents a religion of works. I work the field. This is the product of what I work for, uh, the fruit of the ground, uh, the product of my own labor. But Adam, Abel, by, by the other way, contrasts a religion of faith, a religion of faith established in blood, that God is doing that right there, that Christ will come to save us and be on the cross uh, on substitutionary blood. Cain's offering fails because it does not involve a substitutionary death of an innocent victim. There it is. That's what it takes to be forgiven and washed of your sin, a substitutionary death of an innocent. Now, uh, this becomes important. Now, Abel also, typologically, Abel also is a type of Christ in that he makes his offering to God in his capacity as a shepherd, just as Jesus. And you see this, how God elevates the role of being a shepherd. Uh, and so the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see that in John 10, verse 15. Christ said he was the good shepherd. And all the verses in the Psalms speaking about the good shepherd, the shepherd who takes care of the sheep, who brings the sheep, who prepares the sheep. And so uh, the shepherd, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus did for you. He laid down his life for you. Uh, Cain kills Abel out of envy and anger and jealousy, just as Christ 
is brought up uh, and, and also put on the cross out of envy and hatred. Uh, and those religious leaders hated Jesus, hated him for what he did, hated him for how he connected with sinners, and, and they killed him. So you see here how Abel really, typologically, is also a part of sight of Christ. God is giving you uh, a picture of what will happen several thousand years down the line. This is how you will recognize your Savior. This is how I am preparing. And to think the magnificence of God in that even before time started, he put all this into motion. Uh, While Abel's blood demands vengeance, uh, Christ's blood is ultimately about mercy, atonement, and pardon. Christ died for his sheep. Amen? He died for his sheep. Now, Noah, Noah also, uh, is also identified in the New Testament as a type of Christ. Again, a typological type of Christ. Uh, and and he's linked to Jesus uh, in foreshadowing our redemption. This is how Jesus will be. Jesus will be the veritable ark that you will walk into to be saved from your sin. Uh, And so you see here, Noah is saved because of his faith in God's promise to spare him and his family. God promises Noah, I will spare you and your family, which prefigures the believer's salvation in Christ through faith. Again, this is thousands of years before Christ will come, but it sets the pattern, the pattern of what Christ will be. Uh, through Noah. Noah has been called a second Adam because, in a sense, all human beings come from, from Noah because the world was wiped out. Uh, and interestingly, and this is interestingly as well, the, the ark only had one door. One door. One door. Okay? There wasn't a front door and a back door. There was one door. Why is that? Because only God would leave the door open and only God would close the door. All right? And I I submit to you, this is why Jesus said, uh, no man cometh to the Father except through me. You see how God ties it all together, how it's all wrapped up together. There it is, the ark, one door. Uh, And you understand this. Uh, only one door is available for man to enter into eternal life. Don't give me your stupid philosophy, all right? All your phony baloney religion that you think about. And I hear people talk about this all the time. I laugh, really. I laugh. I mean, I, I laugh, but I cry. When I hear people say, you know, even celebrities will go on and they always ask celebrities, well, I believe in the basic goodness of humanity. Really, where where are you finding the basic goodness of humanity? What book are you reading about the basic goodness of humanity? Every book that I've ever read, every effort that I've ever seen talks about the degrading aspect of humanity. There is no good. There was one guy perfect, and what did we do? We put him on a cross. We repudiated him. That's what humanity is about. Uh, And so there is one door, one door only. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9, really effectively, I am the door. How about that? There it is. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in uh, and find pasture. I am the door. That's John 10, verse 9. And so the, the ark, you see, provides a refuge for all creatures, just as Christ's church provides salvation for all human beings. And let's make this absolutely clear today. Any person, irrespective of what they have done in their life, if they suddenly come to faith and recognize that they've lived a life outside of the will of God and say, Father, forgive me. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. They're saved. You understand? I don't care who they are, what they did, they're saved. That is the grace of God. All right? That's the nature of salvation. So don't really have angst over what you did in your life past because God wiped it all away. He wiped it all away. He has forgiven you once you accept Jesus Christ. Well, interesting, Gen Genesis 6, uh, verse 8, reports the first words of God spoken to Noah. And there it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was living a life in conformity with God's will and righteousness. And so he found favor. Uh, and so what I would say to you is this is how you want to lead, lead your life. This is what you want to have in your life so that when you come and face Jesus one day and face the Father, you want to have him say the words that Jesus said uh, at the beginning, that Jesus was told at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 3, verse 17. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I want God to look at each one of you and say those words. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is a man who walks with God, who recognized what it means to be walking with God, who submitted his life, who sacrificed and worshipped and lived a life in accordance with what God demands from us. Uh, look, Noah acted in total obedience to God. He did what God commanded, and God blessed him and protected him. And so there you have it, two examples about Christ in the Old Testament. Noah as a typological version of Jesus Christ, uh, and Abel, really, as a representation of the Good Shepherd. Let's bow our heads as we close. Father, I thank you so much for the words that you have given us. Father, I ask that the Holy Spirit let these words resonate in our heart. Let us reflect on them in a powerful way. Let us leave here committed to walking with you and serving you in every way. Let us continue to expand on your word in Scripture, recognizing that every word from Genesis to Revelation is about him, about Jesus in every way. And let us incorporate these words into our lives and bring these words to a lost world. Protect our men, be with them, and bring them back safely next week as we continue to study your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.